semester, as you guys know, we're going to be continuing our series called Reframed. And in this series, Jesus is telling these parables that he's using to reframe our walks with God. So he takes these, uh, these stories, these instances that people think that they know a lot about and think that they're super familiar with, and then he adds a plot twist in them, and that completely uh, reshifts or reframes what it looks like to follow Jesus. So as we read through these parables, we'll find that some are shocking. The one we're reading tonight is shocking and a little disturbing. Um, some are hilarious, but they all have these life-altering truths on what it looks like to follow Jesus. And tonight, we're going to read a parable that speaks to one of the most important topics that you will ever draw a conclusion about. And the topic is this, who is God and what is he like? So however you answer this question, who is God and what is he like, will determine what you value, will determine how you act, will determine uh, how you feel about yourself, will determine how you view other people, it will determine your whole outlook on life, the way you live, and it'll even determine your eternal destiny. Um, our belief about what we believe to be true about God is the starting point for everything. And A.W. Tozer says that uh, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And if I told you to, if I had you guys do a little exercise where I said write down the three things that come to your mind when you think about God, I'm not going to make you do that, but I would venture to say what we're going to talk about tonight probably would not be on the list. Our parable today is going to really illuminate one attribute of God that is firmly placed within our theology. And it's a surprising one, but when we embrace it, as we're going to see, it has complete ripple effects for how we live out our Christian lives. So the passage that we're going to be in tonight is going to be in Matthew chapter 22, and the one and only Glenn is going to come and read the passage for us. So let's give it up for Glenn. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who's prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who have been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he said to some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened castle, cat cattle has been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Thanks, Glenn. So this parable 
has a lot of twists and turns to it. Um, a lot's happening here. But he starts this parable uh, with one thing that I don't want us to miss. He says, the kingdom of God is like. And this is how he starts a lot of his parables. He's getting ready to tell us what the kingdom of God is like. And this is what he said. He says, the kingdom of God is like a wedding banquet. It is like a king throwing a wedding banquet for his son. And what we have to understand about this culture is that it wasn't like weddings nowadays where we get in at two, the wedding lasts maybe an hour, we take a break, and then we go to the reception and are all home by 11.30. Um, that is not what weddings were like in this culture. Weddings sometimes lasted entire weeks. People would take time off of work. So they would stay there the entire time, and it was one nonstop party day after day. It would go on for seven days, um, and it was an epic celebration. And Jesus, so the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, is written for a Jewish audience. So as Jesus is telling the story, they would have known exactly what this meant. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a giant party that goes on and on and on. And it's interesting, of all of the things that Jesus could have said, the kingdom of heaven is like, could have said, the kingdom of heaven is like a synagogue meeting. That sounds pretty religious. He could have said the kingdom of heaven is like a political gathering, because that sounds more kingly, more kingdomy. He could have said that the kingdom of heaven is like a long song service. Does anybody ever get nervous that heaven's just going to be singing songs over and over and over again? I know Joanne doesn't. Yeah, Joanne's like, it's not! <laughs> um, Okay, there we go. Kim thinks it's amazing. Uh, that always concerned me growing up, but anywho, neither here nor there. But he doesn't say any of those things. Of all of the things that he could have said to compare the kingdom of God to, he says that it is like a big party. And I want to propose that this reveals an aspect of God's character that we cannot afford to miss. I want to propose this, that the nature of God, the very nature of God, is one of great joy. In fact, God is the most joy-filled being in the entire universe. He is a God of celebration. He is a God of overflowing and overwhelming joy. And he's a God who, quite frankly, loves a good party. His first miracle was turning water into wine at a party at one of these days-long celebrations. And many of us, if I'm making assumptions, probably don't have this initial picture of God as being one who loves a great party. And maybe uh, some of us grew up in traditions where um, we were to be very reverent, and to be reverent to God meant that we needed to be quiet and unemotional in worship. And, and that's not a bad thing, but I think it's easy to maybe think that God is a little quiet and unemotional and reserved. Or maybe you grew up in a tradition where God is so intense that he has a mission for your life, and you've got to be all in with the mission. And you're thinking, well, if God is that intense, then how does he have time? How does he have any time for joy in his life if he's that intense? And maybe some of you guys grew up, and God just seemed uh, very angry all the time. Like, if you were having too good of a time, you probably were sinning, and you don't know why you're sinning, but you must be because you're having a good time. Anybody? We have all of these 
conceptions of what God is like. And here's the truth, that God is to be awed, and he's to be revered. He is zealous to fulfill his mission. He is laser-focused in bringing his plan of redemption for the world. He is a God of justice, and that's something we see in this parable as well. As well. But he is also of God a celebration, and a God who loves a good party. We serve this God who loves to celebrate. We serve this joyous God, and we see this all throughout Scripture. So I'm going to take us on a really quick tour of Scripture. We don't have to go far. I can go into page one of your Bible, uh, Genesis 1. We see this chapter where we see the great joy as God creates the world. In fact, um, there's this author, John Ortberg, and he once wrote about the creation story in Genesis 1. And he wrote um, as if God uh, wasn't a joyous God, what that might have looked like if God wasn't a God of joy and of celebration, uh, what the creation story would have read like. And so I'm going to read a few paragraphs of that to you. He said that uh, God separated the waters from the dry land, and he made all the dry land flat, plain, and functional, so that, behold, the whole earth looked like Kansas. He thought about making mountains and valleys and glaciers and jungles and forests, but decided it wouldn't be worth the effort. And God looked at what he had done that day and said, it'll have to do. And God made a pigeon fly in the air and a carp to swim in the waters and a cat to creep upon dry ground. And God thought about making millions of other species in all sizes and shapes and colors, but couldn't drum up the enthusiasm for any other animals. And in fact, he wasn't too crazy about the cat. So God looked at all of the things he'd done, and God said, it'll have to do. And then, at the end of the week, God was seriously burnt out, so he breathed a big sigh of relief and said, thank me, it's Friday. And this isn't the God at all that we find in Genesis. In fact, we see that at the end of every day, God says that it was good. He looks at his creation and he says that it was good. And then on the very last day, the pinnacle of creation, the creation of humanity, it says that God looked at it and said it was very good. It was intensely, exceedingly good. You can't help but feel his celebration and his joy when he created the world. He was celebrating his creation. And then we get to chapter 3 which is the most tragic chapter in all of scripture, and we see that something has happened and something has gone terribly wrong. And it's like this orchestra that is playing at its height and crescendo, and all of the sections are playing in perfect harmony, in perfect melody, and Adam and Eve were celebrating, and then they sinned, and the music stopped. The party, it came to a screeching halt. The silence screamed, and sin ruined the party. But then immediately in, in Genesis 3.15, God comes and he says that he will restore the party, but it'll come at a great cost. He says that the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head, and the party will be restored. In that moment, it sets a scripture, it sets the story that God is working on a trajectory from this perfect celebration in the Garden of Eden towards this perfect redemption of humanity where God vows to restore his perfect and joyous creation. 
Let's move on. We see in Zephaniah 3.17, we see God celebrating over his people. It says that God will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing. That's the picture that we have, that God, our dignified Heavenly Father, is rejoicing and dancing over you with singing. And then we have this. We have in Galatians chapter 5, Paul is writing, and he's talking about these fruits of the Spirit, these fruits of the Holy Spirit. And that's this, that when the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit lives within you, it starts to change you, and you start to become more like God. And so, in the first fruit that he mentions, he says that, uh, that you will become more loving because God is love. And the second fruit that he mentions is joy. That we, um, that if joy is evidence that the Spirit is working in our life, then that means that God is the very source of all joy. And then we see uh, talk about celebrations in heaven. In Luke 15, uh, we see a parable, a few parables of lost things, which Jesse is going to preach on next week, so that's exciting. But we see a parable of a lost coin. We see a parable of a lost sheep. And then we see a parable of a lost son. And at the end of each of these parables, it ends with declaring that heaven erupts, that all of heaven erupts every time a sinner repents, every time that which was lost has been found. All of heaven erupts. And if heaven celebrates every time somebody comes to know Christ, every time somebody repents and turns towards God, then heaven must never stop celebrating. It's this non-stop party. And just think about that. Think about being in the Verizon Center and our basketball team being good. And it's like, we're going to really have to stretch and imagine this here. Um, we beat Syracuse my senior year, uh, which a lot of you might not know what that's like to beat Syracuse. And um, last year, okay, 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 I stand corrected then. But anyway, beat Syracuse, the crowd erupted, and we stormed the court at the Verizon Center. And imagine that, but so much more. Every single time, someone who is lost is found. And that's the picture that Jesus paints here. And this celebration is not in spite of our Heavenly Father. He's not there with furled eyebrows, like, simmer down, flock. He's the one who is initiating the party. He gives us this picture of a father and a prodigal son, and the father is running, and he's waving his arms, and he's excited because his son, who was lost, is now found, and he says, put the music on, kill the fatted calf. We are going to party because my son, who was lost, is now found. He initiates this party. Mark Batterson once said, have you ever told God a joke in prayer? Because if you haven't, then there might be something that we have to learn about God. And I always think, whenever uh, he says that, I always think of uh, David and Isaac, if you've ever had the privilege of being around them when they get into their, their rise um, banter. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I don't know what they start, they start talking about all those rising and, yeah, all the, just their general existence. I always think, <laughs> I think that they have Jesus cracking up all the time. And I always imagine that when you guys meet Jesus, that he's going to crack some type of rise joke. I just, I have a feeling. 
that's not in scripture anywhere. This is just my own personal thoughts. But I imagine that God thinks that, that it's really, really funny. Um, okay. <laughs> and you might say, you might say, wait a second. But I thought scripture said that Jesus was a man of sorrow and a savior who experiences grief. And we see that that is definitely true. We also see that God, um, we also see God's wrath. We see Jesus get angry. However, when we see God's anger and his sorrow, we see it as his response to a fallen world. We see that joy is his natural state and we see him experience these emotions when, when sin and this fallen world interfere with this perfect state of joy. That's when we see God's wrath. That's when we see his, his sorrow. But joy is a thing that naturally flows. So do you know him? Do you know God as a God of joy? Your heavenly Father is overflowing with joy. I think we focus so much on, on how when we're suffering, that God is suffering with us, that Jesus knows what it means to, be su to suffer. He knows what it means to be human. But I don't think we often think about that God also laughs with us as well. God also celebrates with us as well. So in this parable, Jesus is reframing the Christian life. He's reframing what it means to walk with him. And there are many ways that he does this in this parable, but I'm going to focus on two of them. So first of all, Jesus frames this invitation in a way that we can't overlook. It's not just a wedding banquet that he's describing, but it is a wedding banquet for the king. Do any of y'all remember the uh, royal wedding six, seven years ago? Okay, when Prince William, or King William, no, Prince William, and, and Princess Kate were getting married, and it was crazy. All of the media uh, news was covering it, all of the magazines had them on the cover. I remember uh, the day that they were actually getting married, my mom was like, shh, shh, the doors are about to open. Everybody was intensely watching this wedding. It was one of the most watched um, shows, or like events in history. I don't know, I'm looking at Jeff for confirmation of that. Um, it was one of the most watched <laughs> events in history because it was a royal wedding. It's just crazy, like this isn't even our country. And we're obsessed over it. But there's something about a royal wedding. Jesus frames this specifically in this way because if you grew up in a monarchy, then there was no greater invitation, there was no greater privilege than getting the invitation to attend the wedding of the king's son. There was no greater privilege, no greater affirmation that you could have gotten than that. And let me ask you, let's think about what are some of the greatest invitations that we could get. There's a guy, I think I have a picture of him, uh, Warren Buffett, if you got anyone. He's the CEO of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, and Berkshire, Berkshire, uh, there he is. Um, he's a billionaire investor, and every year he auctions off a lunch, so someone can pay to have lunch with him. And last year, somebody paid $3.46 million to have a meal with Warren Buffett. So if he invited you to lunch with him, then that invitation would be worth $3.46 million. It's crazy. But maybe it's an invitation to uh, hang backstage with your favorite musician or play 
uh, one-on-one with LeBron James or maybe dinner with the Obamas, whatever it is. Um, we have these invitations, and they are of great value to us. And Jesus, he's framing this parable. He's telling them um, in this specific culture to this specific people, um, he's describing one of the greatest invitations that they could receive, and that was to go to the wedding that the king is throwing. And here's what we cannot miss. He's saying that there's no greater honor, no greater privilege, no greater joy, no greater affirmation, no greater security. There is nothing more valuable um, than to have this fellowship with God, this fellowship with the king, and be able to sit at the table with him. And that's what he's inviting them to. And unfortunately, the people respond pretty interestingly to this invitation. And I think if we don't believe that, that this invitation that Jesus is offering is the greatest source of fulfillment and joy, uh, then I think we can actually respond similarly to how the people in this parable responded. They said things like, sorry, I'm a little busy, I'm not going to make it. And Luke, uh, he tells the same parable. And they're like, oh, I have land, I got a job. One person was like, I actually just got married a few weeks ago, so I'm good. And they all had excuses. And the king's response, when he got back their initial responses, was shocking. Instead of um, being content with that, he's like, no, 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 no. He sends his servants out again. He's like, tell them again, they must not have understood the invitation that I was offering. He's like, make sure you tell them what they are turning down. Tell them that I have butchered my auction, uh, my oxen, that I have butchered the fattened cattle, not just one cow, but cattle. And this is the feast of all feasts, and I have held absolutely nothing back. So in spite of the king sending his servants out again um, so that they would understand the privilege of this invitation, he gets a similar response. They still refuse. They're just tranquilized by the, the trivial in their lives. They have other things that they'd rather be doing. So some of them just turn down the invitation again, but others, they do uh, something that's pretty unthinkable. And I think something we have to realize about parables is that uh, they're stories that aren't necessarily uh, represented, uh, representative of reality. They have these, this flair for the dramatic. They have these plot twists. So what we see here is some just refuse the invitation again, but others express such hostility towards the king that they kill his servants. And in this time, killing his servants was to uh, declare war against the king. So the king, in response to them declaring war, goes out and he gets justice by killing the enemies. And this was this revolutionary act, and the king defeats them here. And so everybody who was listening to this parable would have seen the response of the king in the situation, and they would have known him to be justified because that's what you do when someone declares war. You work to defeat the enemy. So we also see, though, that ultimately there were some people who did come to the wedding banquet, and it says both good and bad. So it wasn't about the goodness of those who were invited, but it was about the goodness of the one who was giving the invitation. And so I want to ask, do you view fellowship with the Father as one of the greatest joys, the greatest honors, and the greatest privilege that you have? And Jesus encourages us to understand the fullness of this opportunity that, 
that God is giving us to partake in this celebration. And one of the other implications, uh, I want to discuss one other implication and then I'll close it out. Uh, When we look at how Jesus frames this parable, we see something interesting. We see that the king prepares the banquet, the king makes provisions for the banquet, the king invites people to the banquet, and all that people have to do is respond to the invitation. From the beginning of the process to the end of the process, it's all initiated by the king. It's grace from beginning to end, and all people have to do is respond. And right here, Jesus is describing what the Christian life looks like. And it's interesting because this parable is so antithetical to so many of the world religions where you can never really know if you can enter paradise. Um, or maybe sometimes it's based solely on your works and your deeds on earth, and you've got to hope that that's enough. But we see in the gospel, we see that the king prepares the banquet. The king invites you to the banquet. He makes provisions for the banquet. And the king does all the work, and he's inviting you to come and rest at the table. And it's all grace. From beginning to end, it's grace. And we don't have to strive for God's acceptance, but we can rest in the fact that provisions have been made and that we can eat at the table with the king. And when our hearts, when they begin to stray away from joy, which I think is easy to happen, we have to be reminded that our God is a God of joy. It is a profound privilege that we get to go to this celebration, this wedding banquet of the king, and partake. And all we have to do is accept that invitation. And that's good news at Georgetown, at a place where we constantly strive and work to prove ourselves, that we don't have to strive. We just have to be willing to come. And then we see that this parable ends kind of peculiarly. It ends with a guy who doesn't meet the dress code. The guy showed up to the wedding, and he's wearing jorts or whatever you would wear to be underdressed at the wedding, whatever the case was. He wasn't in the proper attire. And have you ever been somewhere, uh, and it isn't until you show up that you realized that you were very, very underdressed for the occasion? that ever happened to anybody? Yeah. Um, So this peculiar thing that's happening here is he shows up and he's thinking that he can get in to this banquet on his own terms and in his own way. And he wears whatever he wants and he thinks that that's going to be good enough until he gets to the party. And this is what it is like when we believe that our own righteousness can get us there. We think that we're, we're pretty good. We got things pretty figured out until we arrive and we realize that compared to the needed attire, our clothes are nothing but filthy rags. And that's why when this man was confronted by the king, he stood there in silence because he knew that he wasn't dressed for the occasion. When Jesus, he tells this story like I mentioned in Matthew, and Matthew being written to a Jewish audience, I'm pretty sure that when he's telling this story, their minds would have gone to Isaiah 61. Because this talks about the ministry of the Messiah. And in verse 10, in Isaiah 61, 10, it says, For he, the Messiah, has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. And it says in another place in Isaiah that our righteousness, our own righteousness, is like filthy rags. 
And essentially, if we try to come to the wedding banquet of the king in just our filthy rags, then we're not going to be dressed well enough to get in. And in this picture that Jesus is giving us, he gives us these garments of salvation, and he arrays us in robes of righteousness. And when he's talking about this in the book of Isaiah, what is he referencing? What are they getting dressed for? And we get the answer to that in the second half of the verse. It says, As the bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So they are getting dressed here for a wedding banquet. And that's what God is preparing. He's preparing us all for this wedding banquet. The Father, he doesn't just prepare the party. He doesn't just invite you into the party. But he takes your filthy rags and he clothes you with his righteousness so that you can enter into the wedding banquet of the king. And so you can sit at the table with the king because we would never be able to come on our own righteousness. Our righteousness is woefully inefficient. It's not sufficient enough. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he said, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So the picture we get in this parable is this joyful king who makes celebration, who makes it possible from beginning to end, and who is inviting us to this party that goes on and on and on. That is the picture that we get here of the kingdom of God and of who and of the character of God. Do we have any questions? And then I'll close up. What is the difference between coming to the banquet with dirty rags and not cleaning ourselves up before coming to God? Why doesn't the king give new clothes to the man with improper clothes? That is a good question. Um, in this parable, so that at the end, the guy, he comes, he's not wearing the proper attire, and he receives a pretty harsh punishment for that. And I think in that, that section, God is speaking um, to on our parts. It's not enough that he's, he's offering us these robes of righteousness. He's offering us an invitation to come into the banquet and to celebrate and to partake in the celebration with the king. But we also have to choose to take that invitation. We have to choose to be covered in his robes of righteousness. That's something that is offered to us freely, but not something that we have to accept. And I think at the end, um, in verse 14, where he says, for many are invited, but few are chosen, that word many in the original language is also translated as to all. And so it says for all, or it could say, so for all are invited, but few are chosen. And I think that speaks to this question right here, that we all have this invitation that Jesus is giving us. We all have access to the proper attire to come into this wedding banquet. And what the man was doing is he was trying to come in on his own terms and thinking that his own merit would be enough and not recognizing his need for God's righteousness. And this will be the last question. How do I live with the hope that a party awaits me in heaven when things are so sorrowful, sorrowful here on earth? Yeah, another really good question. I think going back to what makes Christianity so different from a lot of the other uh, religions that we can follow is that we can know that this is waiting for us. We can know 
that we're not going to be surprised when we meet Jesus, that he's not going to say, you didn't do enough good deeds, you didn't pray hard enough, you didn't do X, Y, Z, because he tells us that it's not at all based on our own merit, but it's based on our willingness to humble ourselves and accept him as our Savior. And I think that um, going back to this parable, we see that the king is representative of God, and he is doing everything here. There is not a single thing that the people had to do except show up to the invitation, um, show up to the banquet. I think another thing that's interesting about this is if we dug deeper into Jewish culture at the time, um, all of these people would have already received an invitation to this banquet. And when the servant went out the first time in the parable, uh, that was more his way of saying, like, the, the, the wedding is now, um, the celebration's ready, it's time for you to come. And then the people at that point thought that they had too much going on. It wasn't worth it for them to come, even though it was something that they had previously desired and committed to. And I think that that's in the sorrow and in the suffering of life. I think that that's what we can hold on to, the fact that we have this invitation, that it's the greatest invitation, it's the greatest privilege that we'll ever have, that we serve a God who suffers with us in these sorrowful times, but is ultimately a God of joy, and he's restoring this. And we see throughout the Bible where he's restoring this perfect celebration, this perfect communion with him. And I think that that's something that we can take to the bank, that's something that we can put our faith in and know that to be true. So we're going to transition into a time of worship and just some questions that I want us to think about as we're worshiping. Do we view God as a God of joy? C.S. Lewis, he says that joy is the serious business of heaven. And I love that quote. God, he takes joy seriously. And the scripture is revealing to us that God, there is so much joy in creation, and there's going to be so much joy in redemption. So why don't we all stand to our feet? If you want to stay sitting for worship, you're welcome to do that too. But let's stand and uh, pray together. God of joy and you are a God of celebration and you are a God that says all of heaven erupted into a party when we turned back to you God and Lord I pray if there are people in here who have never made that decision to turn and run to you God I pray that they would run to the party at their father's house I pray that you would clothe all of us in your robes of righteousness. And I pray that this fellowship that we have with you would be like the pearl of great price that we find and that we give everything we have. And I pray, Lord, that the power of your grace would saturate our souls, God, that we would become more and more like you every day. In your name we pray. Amen.